0: For thousands of years, humanity has been asking the same question from culture to culture, from generation to generation. Many people have asked the question Who is God? Welcome to This Divine Moment, a podcast where we learn to notice and respond to the work that God is already doing in each of our lives. In today's episode, we explore our ideas of God. And then we look in the very simple ways that God actually wants us to see Him. Welcome to this divine moment. I am your host, Ben Cornick, and I am so glad that you are joining me for this episode. And if you don't know me, um, I am a husband, I'm a father, uh, I'm also a pastor, and I'm a speaker. And I am someone who has radically been shaped by my views of God or how God has uh, chosen to reveal himself to me. Now, this is a question that a lot of people talk about, um, maybe not regularly, but at some point in their life, they're asking the question, who is God? And I remember uh, this really um, vivid moment when I was in a... Uh, English lit class, and we were looking at the sermon in the hands of an angry God, or sinners in the hands of an angry God. And this one girl in the class, um, I can just, I can still remember how her face looked when she said it. She said, look, if God is angry, then I want nothing to do with him. And she's like, if this is who God really is, then like, I could care less. And it was an interesting moment because I remember thinking, well, is, is God angry? And I'm like, well, clearly there's moments in the Bible where we see anger from the Lord. I'm like, but was it fair of Jonathan Edwards to cast God in that light? And in some ways I would say, sure, it absolutely was. And I think in the time period and in the place he was living in, um, it clearly was effective in evangelism and in uh, teaching. Uh, People really gravitated towards it. I don't exactly know why, um, but I think part of it has to do with that sometimes people want to hear that raw um, truth that we need. But as much as there's moments where God is angry, that's not actually the primary way that he reveals himself in Scripture, now, it's interesting because uh, one of the first moments that we really see God revealing himself in Scripture to, uh, you know, a fallen humanity is this moment when he meets Moses in the burning bush. And when Moses says, who should I tell them sent me? He says, tell them I am sent you. I, I am that I am. That's what he says. Who, that's who he says he is, which is like super like, OK, God is pretty much just saying, look, I'm God. Like, you don't need to tell him anyone else sent you. You can just tell him God sent you, and I am who I am. But that really doesn't tell us a lot about who he is. (laughs) I I mean, does he want us to call him I am? And there are some people who uh, believe that that's exactly what he was trying to say. That, um, you know, we, we derive the word Jehovah from that passage of Scripture, And some people say, no, that's actually his name. Like, you need to call him Jehovah. So I just find it interesting, just all these different views that people can have of God. And uh, I was turned on to this article uh, that USA Today did years ago where they, um, they looked at a, I guess, a survey that was done by sociologists at Baylor University. And they... They asked over 1,700 Americans, and one of their questions was, tell us how you view God. Well, 91.8% of them said they believe in some type of a God, and yet when they were asked to describe what this God is like, they came out with four very different views, And uh, these views were labeled as one, authoritarian, two, benevolent, three, critical, or four, distant. So these people, these were the descriptions they gave of how they viewed God. Now, the reason I want to talk about this today is I would say that how we view God is probably the most important factor in all of life. And I really mean that. Why? Why? Well, if God is the author of life, if he really is the king, and someday we stand before him for the judgment, the, the Bible says that to each person it's appointed death, that we'll have a day where we die, and then comes the judgment. So that means that it's a guarantee that every single person has to stand before judgment. So that seems really important to me. Like, we should know who this God is who is going to be the judge that day. But it's also important because I believe that how we view God shapes how we view ourselves and others. I think it was actually Jonathan Edwards who also said, to know God is to know ourselves and to know ourselves is to know God. And what he means is that the more you understand who God is, the more you're going to understand who you are. And then the more you understand who you are, the more you're going to understand who God is, that it's going to be incredible to understand this God who has grace and mercy, um, even though he is the perfect judge. Now, I'll talk more about that in a minute. But here's the interesting thing. See, let me go through those four views that uh, Baylor kind of put people in those four buckets of how they view God. See, if we view God as authoritarian. You know, God is like this dictator up in the heavens and he is just, I mean, you know, we, we hear that he's a, he's a judge. He's going to judge us. So they, people picture, this is where people say things like, um, I don't want to say that because then God might strike me with lightning. Like God is just waiting. Oh man, he is just waiting for the moment you screw up so that he can get you good. Like that's how some people see God and that he's just this rule keeper. Which is super interesting because in the garden, there is only one rule. Only one, legitimately, one rule. Um, the, the, The rest of the laws that come later are a result of sin. Not because God wants to put all these rules on people. He puts the rules in place because people are sinning. So people who view God as authoritarian, I find that often they are also very authoritarian people. They're, because they almost feel justified in it, right? Like, well, this is this is how God sees it. They're very black and white people. Um, they're often hard to get along with. They usually parent their kids uh, very strictly. Um, they, you know, if they're a boss, uh, they're very strict with their employees. You know, they they want you to be five minutes early to a meeting. If you, you know, if you're on time, you're late. Um, and then that means that they also view themselves as someone who's under strict authority. So they're usually very hard on themselves. They usually have very high, um, usually unrealistic standards for themselves. And what this causes is a very unhealthy tension in their life and in the relationships that they have with other people. And and it's just important that we understand if we see God as authoritarian, that that is going to shape the way we view ourselves and others. Now, does God have authority? Pfft, yeah, he does. And does he expect certain things out of his people? Yeah. Jesus said, if you, if you obey me, you're going to love what I command. Or I mean, if you love me, you're going to obey what I command. <laughs> Sorry, that, that came out of my mouth backwards. So, um, but think about that. If you love me, you'll obey what I command. Jesus makes it about love. And I'll get back to that in a little bit. So then the, the second view was benevolent, that God's benevolent. Is God benevolent? Yeah, I, I believe that he is. But if we see him only as benevolent, well, then we're going to have this certain view of God. And uh, there's a lot of people who study religion and sociology and all of these different trends within society. And they're a lot smarter than I am. And they call, they call this view of God um, a moralistic, therapeutic deism. And here's what it means. Moralistic, meaning God wants you to be a generally good person. Like if you do good things, if you're nice to people, you know, you hold open the door for people every once in a while, that, then okay, great. That's what God wants out of you. And then moralistic therapeutic deism. So therapeutic. Yeah, God, uh, he is there to make you feel better. Like that's God. That's what God wants to do in your life. He wants to make you feel better. And the truth is like, that's not completely wrong. There's so many moments where you're reading the scripture and God flat out says, like, he's, he's close to the brokenhearted. He wants to give us peace and joy that we could never fathom. Uh, he wants to uh, give us rest. I mean, he does want you to uh, feel more peaceful and more joyful in life. That's That's not untrue. But when we have a, moral, a moralistic therapeutic deism, now deism, uh, that's just a belief in general of God. And a lot of Americans fall into this because if you think about it, most people will say they're fine saying things like, well, you know, um, in God we trust. But if you were to say to them, well, is it in Jesus that you trust? They would say, well, I'm not sure about that, but I do believe there's a God. And so essentially, here's what that means. We kind of treat God like a cosmic Santa Claus. Like, look, uh, he's got a naughty list and he's got a nice list and you want to stay on the nice list. And if you're nice, you can ask him to, you know, give you things that you want. And he's going to because he wants you to feel good and have a good life. And, um, you know, he's there. He exists. He's somewhere in the North Pole. You know, he's somewhere up in the sky. But, you know, all you have to do is believe in him. Like you, you, there's, there's not, not much else to it. And, um, and honestly, uh, I would say that unfortunately, there's been many evangelical Bible believing churches that actually have pushed this view of God into their congregations. So it's not a surprise that many, many Americans have this view of God. Now, in some ways, this view maybe has been baked into American society since the 1700s. But I truly believe that right now, this is almost the unofficial state religion of America. And uh, things might be quickly changing. But I would say that for most people that are probably between the ages of 25 and 70. I would say that most of them would fall into this category. Now, uh, the third category that Baylor talked about was critical, that people view God as critical. You know, he just, uh, he's very critical. He's very quick to judge like that. That's kind of this viewpoint. Um, so they almost view God as petty, some people. And this this would have been that girl that was in that uh, English lit class that I was in. Um, she, you know, she just saw God as like this petty God. What is he so mad about? Why is he so angry with people? Like, is it so offensive that someone would, um, show too much skin or that someone uh, might be attracted to somebody that God doesn't want them to be attracted to, or that somebody, um, might have different beliefs than the pastor down the road. Well, uh, then why is he so angry? Like, can't, can't God find bigger things to be angry about? And so some people, that's kind of the view they have of God. And what this will do is usually if you think God is critical, well, then it's often true that either you yourself are critical or that you feel like you've been criticized a lot in your life. And so the fact that you see God as critical, um, you know, it just means that you have a negative view of who he is. Now, does God care about the things we do and say? And yeah, of course he does, because God doesn't want sin in our lives, because sin destroys us. Just like I don't want my kids drinking poison. Um, but if we if we view God as critical, then um, that is going to shape the way we see ourselves, the way we view our relationship with him, and the way that we treat others. Because either we're going to try to be completely non-critical of anybody, and sometimes you do need to... Uh, have a sense of like is this person trustworthy or not should this person be listened to or not like I mean th- those are moments that you really should be critical right or you're going to be uber critical and you're going to criticize people on things that don't even matter and so um, and then there's the distant view of God that's the fourth view. And I think there's a lot of people who fall into this camp. They believe, and, and it's a little bit similar to the moralistic therapeutic deism. They believe there's a God, but he's distant. And how that can shape our views is that um, we can hear of somebody who's in trouble, but we don't really feel the need to have to do anything for them. We'll just go, man, that really, that's really terrible that they're in trouble. Um, or we, we think, because that's how we think God is. Like, hey, I'll pray, but God's not really going to respond. Like maybe he will, but more than likely he's not going to because he's distant, he's busy, he's got things going on. And so these are four different ways that most Americans, 91% of Americans fall into one of those camps of how they view God, which is kind of crazy to me because Jesus tells us exactly how we should view God. He tells us exactly how to address God. And he actually tells us, how God himself wants us to relate to him. There's a moment where Jesus is teaching his followers how to pray. Now, what I'm about to say to you, you've probably heard many times, some of you have probably said these words over a thousand times in your life, maybe even more than that, maybe 10,000 times. And yet for most of us, the power of these words It just, it doesn't even phase us. We don't even realize the words that we're saying because they become so, they become white noise. They just become so familiar to us. Uh, It's like saying the Pledge of Allegiance or, um, you know, like when someone asks you how you're doing and you go, oh, fine, good. And you're like, actually, I'm not doing good. But those are just the words that come out of my mouth. The words I'm about to say to you, most people know, but I don't think they realize how powerful they actually are. Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. And the first words he says we should say when we pray is our Father who is in heaven. Our Father. Now, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He, you know, so if you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus. So I need you to grab a hold of this with me. Jesus, in this moment is telling them that how God wants to be addressed is as our Father. He could have said anything in that moment. When you pray, say, our King, say, our Lord, um, say, our Creator. Uh, I mean, there's so Our Healer, our Redeemer, our Judge. I mean, there's so many words that Jesus could have said, this is the word that you need to say. But what did he say? He said, our Father that that is how God in heaven wants to be addressed by people on earth. He wants us to view him as our father. Now, this is mind-blowing to me. Because I remember when I first really understood this, um, I was uncomfortable with it, to be honest. Because actually, if you go even a little further into the idea, the original Hebrew or Aramaic word that Jesus uses here. Um, is, is the word Abba and the word Abba, it it has a tough time finding a counterpart in English. Some people say the word daddy would work there, uh, which is a little odd. Um, but I actually think the better word would be like Papa. Um, Papa would be a perfect word, uh, to match up to what Jesus was saying. Like our Papa who is in heaven. Because when you when you use the word Papa, either if you use it for your dad or a grandfather, it's a term of endearment, it's a term of love, and it immediately puts you in the place of feeling like a little one. And and then you view the, the person you're calling Papa as like this wise, older person who you can trust and you can depend on. I mean, that's like the picture that Jesus is trying to paint here. And then he also says, uh, this is a collective reality our father. So we are all part of a family. Jesus is painting a very vivid picture here, but this is also individual because someday you'll stand before God and it'll just be you. It'll, it'll just be you standing there, not you and everybody else you know. And so God wants you to view him as your father. That is the relationship he always has intended, which is why Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. They were his kids. So we also have to admit that when we have this conversation, even when we talk about how we view God, we have to admit that our own parents help shape our views. Now, I'm not trying to get all Freudian on you, but there is so much truth to this. If you had a father or a mother who is overbearing and authoritarian, well, it's going to be easy for you to assume that that's how God is. If uh, If your dad was distant Then it's going to be easy to assume that that's how God is. And I want to tell you, like, how do we actually relate then to God? Like, what does it mean to have God as our Father? And I want to tell you a really personal story of something that happened to me in relation to my own parents. And I will share that with you right after we take a quick break. Well, hey. I wanted to take a quick moment to tell you about something that I have been really enjoying and benefiting from. Um, Whenever I stop the podcast, it's not to give you a sponsored ad. You're never going to hear a sponsored ad on this divine moment, Um, but it's just for me to share with you something that has been impacting me and something that I think can help you. Now, lately, there's a podcast that I've been listening to that's been super helpful and insightful for me. Um, And I've been enjoying it, not because uh, I enjoy the content as much as I enjoy the fruit that I think can come from a podcast like this. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and it chronicles a church called Mars Hill Church that existed in Seattle, Washington uh, from around the year 2000 to about the year 2014. And the reason I want to recommend it to you is because I think it's about time that the church in America seriously looks at what it means for us to reform, what it means for us to become the church that Jesus wants us to be. And we have to be really serious about the way we build church cultures, uh, the way that we present God to the culture around us, and the way that we raise up heroes of the faith among us Uh, in a way that sometimes could be really, really unhealthy. I think it's going to help you to see a lot of how American Christianity has gotten to where it is. And it's also going to help you to see your place in that entire movement and what you could do personally in your own life uh, and in your own church to see the church of Jesus Christ in America Uh, get back to a place where we can be the witness that God wants us to be to our culture so it's called the rise and fall of Mars Hill you can listen to it anywhere where podcasts um, are able to be downloaded and it's by Christianity Today and so uh, check it out and let me know what you think about it now let's get back to the show All right. So before the break, I said that I wanted to share with you a time where for me, the idea of God being a father became real to me in life. Because uh, when I first heard that concept, I was really uncomfortable with it. And here's why. Uh, my dad and I, we didn't know each other till I was in my teens. Um, I didn't he was around when I was a baby i don't remember that then he was away for many, many years. Um, I saw him once when I was ten years old, uh, and that was just kind of interesting and um and then after that i didn't i didn't really see him again until uh later in my teen years so it wasn't really till about the age of fifteen that my dad and I started to really develop a relationship and This is after I became a Christian and so Jesus being our Lord. Um, you know, being the king, all these things like I was like, yeah, that that makes sense to me. I was a big Lord of the Rings fan, and I was like, yeah, God's the king. Like, and then when I realized that we are supposed to address God as our Father, things got a little weird for me because in my mind, uh, a father is distant. And then um, when I was seventeen, uh, my family was living in a house and. We got evicted from our house because we couldn't afford to pay our bills. And so um, my dad said, hey, you know, I, I can't really do anything to help you right now. And then my mom said the same thing. And so at the age of 17, I was on my own. And so I had to figure things out. And I was bitter. I was frustrated. I was angry. I was like, man, a junior in high school shouldn't have to be figuring all this stuff out. And. Um, but I mean, I was literally living on my own for a couple weeks. I was, I was like homeless. I was trying to just find a place to live. I was sleeping on, uh, someone's guest bed in their house. And, and after a while I found a rental and picked up hours at work, but I remember feeling abandoned and just frustrated and a little hopeless. And then I read this verse in Psalm twenty seven ten, and it says, even when my mother and father forsake me. Lord, you will receive me. And I just thought to myself, you know what? God is the parent that I've always needed. And I, I love my parents. My mom's no longer with us. And my dad, uh, he and I, we, we've over the years been just continuing to try to figure out what it means for us to have a relationship. But in that day, I realized that the parent that I really need is God. God. And even people who have good parents, they need to come to that same realization because the truth is, at some point, our parents won't be there. My mom is no longer on earth. And so these are the things that we have to pay attention to. And there's other verses that tell us what it means for God to be our father. Like, it's one thing to have that sentiment and that idea and that feeling, but what does it practically mean that he wants to be our father? Well, I think there's a few ideas here. For example, Matthew 5 talks about how God, he's the one who gives us good gifts. Jesus says, look, if you people who deal with being evil can give your kids good gifts, then how much more does your father in heaven want to give you good gifts when you ask for them? Because he was saying it, you have not because you ask not. So it just makes me wonder how often we just assume that God is not going to want to be involved in our lives, how he's not going to want to come to our aid, that he's not going to want to help us. And the truth is, though, uh, he does. He wants to help us. And so um, I'm just I'm just so taken by this idea that God, as our father, um, he really, truly wants to bless us and help us and give us good gifts. And I think um, people, sometimes people are afraid of talking about things like that because they're afraid that they're going to uh, be doing a prosperity gospel. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that the gospel is necessarily about prosperity, um, I think we, we believe in a gospel where God wants to redeem the whole of humanity. He wants to redeem who we are. And so when we think of good gifts, it's not just money. It's not just cars. Like God wants to give us peace and joy. You can't put a price on that. Man, I've met people who are executives, who make so much money, who have everything you could ever want. And you look at their life and you go, man, if only, if only I could have a life like that. And in those unguarded moments, they've admitted to me, you know what? I don't have any peace. I don't have any joy. So God wants to give us good gifts. Not only that, Hebrews 12 talks about how sometimes God disciplines us. But then it says that it shows that uh, we are not illegitimate children because A father disciplines those that he loves. And so when I discipline my kids, um, it it never has any fruit when I do it out of anger. But when I do it out of love, when I'm like, man, I just want my kid to really learn how to have self-control. I want my kid to learn what it means to treat others well. Not because they're a reflection of me, but because someday that's not even going to matter. Someday they're going to be on their own. They're going to be an adult much longer than they're a kid. And yeah, I, they need to know these things because otherwise they're going to be a 25-year-old who still has no idea what's going on in life. And God doesn't want you to be confused. God doesn't, like Satan's the author of confusion. God doesn't want you to live under lies. Satan is the father of lies. God doesn't want those things for you. He, he'll discipline us because he wants us to grow that that you know in the proverbs it talks about how discipline leads to life it's the undisciplined person who will fall into something that is destructive and so god disciplines those he loves and it proves that when we're being disciplined by god it proves that we are his legitimate children so yeah sometimes god's going to discipline us But then in James 1, he says, uh, you know, don't be fooled. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of heavenly lights. And so James is reminding us uh, something that his half-brother Jesus said. God wants to give us good gifts. And so I love how that's reiterated multiple times. Hey, 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 don't forget. God wants to give you a good life. Now, what we think of as a good life and what God thinks of as a good life might be two different things, right? Jesus went to the cross. James was martyred. Uh, Paul was martyred. Peter was martyred. And these were all guys who were talking about how to live the good life. They would never make it in today's motivational speaker uh, circuit. They would never make it. Because they'd be like, hey, you know, the way to a good life is that even when you're suffering, man, just praise God. Like people would be like, no, 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 no. I want you to tell me how to avoid the suffering. That's that's what I need to hear. No, no, no. we have such a good God that even in the midst of suffering, what this world would look at and say, oh, that's really bad. We could actually go, yeah, but do you know that God is actually giving me good things in the midst of this? And only someone who understands God as their Father can truly understand how that works. Uh, it makes me think of a few weeks ago. I took my son on a camping trip, and we had to hike two miles uh, into the wilderness of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. I mean, this is like primitive camping, and my son is just hating it. Like he's like carrying his his backpack, and he's like, "Oh, this is the worst." But Then we got to the campsite and once we got everything set up, he had an incredible time. So yeah, um, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of something difficult, he had to trust me as his dad, as his father, because there was actually something good that was happening. And so I just think that sometimes the way we view good and bad is just so upside down. And God is the one, as our father, who's trying to tenderly love us and care for us. And, uh, you know, even my name, my name is Benjamin. And uh, there's a, a, a blessing in the Old Testament on the tribe of Benjamin that um, God is going to put Benjamin on his shoulders. And I just, I, you know, is like a beloved son, it talks about. And I just think, you know, that's the truth. Like, that's how God views us. He wants to throw us up on his shoulders. Like he, he's not looking to just make your life hard just for the sake of making it hard. No, he'll discipline you. He'll bring you through hard things. But it's for the sake of blessing you. It's for the sake of bringing you into something better. And again, not better by our own standards, better by his standards. And then I love what it says in 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And I don't know if you remember that old hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. But um, this is what, this is, I mean, this is the Bible way before hymns were written. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. For, for those who follow Christ, this is the greatest gift of all. This is the greatest gift we've ever been given. We don't have to have this distant relationship with God. He's not just some authoritarian. Uh, what's interesting is that God is the, the only benevolent uh, dictator, the only benevolent king who's ever existed. Is, is God in charge? Is he in control? Of course he is. But he is benevolent. So he's not authoritarian. He's not benevolent. He's both. Uh, He's definitely not distant because Paul said to the people of Athens, if you would just reach out your hand for God, you'd find that he's right there. Meaning God is literally right where you are. He's just waiting for you to reach out. The moment that you say, God help, boom, he's there. Just like a good dad. Like when my sons are doing something, they're playing on the playground or they're trying some new thing, uh, you know, like riding bikes or something, um, it's not like when my son was learning to ride his bike or I just was like, well, I'm going to go inside, watch, you know, watch a movie. You figure it out, son. No, I, I would let him go. I'd let the bike go. But I was literally running right next to the bike in case he started to fall. God is right next to you. And we are called children of God. But there's a way that that happens. It's by being born again. This is why being born again matters. We leave behind our identity as children of darkness and we step into our destiny as children of light, as God's children. See, God wants to adopt us into his family and he did that because the son came and died a death that we should have died. He died for our sins so that we could all be made into his likeness. See, sin marred the image of God that we've been created in. And then Jesus, who he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But Jesus was also the perfect representation of humanity because he never sinned. He was what Adam was supposed to be. So when we are in him, we are now, we are now re-entering that image of God that we were always meant to uh, be in, And now we get to be in it for eternity. Now there's so much theological stuff I could talk about right there, but the truth is we need to be born again into the kingdom of God so that we can be called children of God. That's why Jesus said the only people who get to enter this kingdom are those who become like these little children, those who are willing to look at God as their father. So may you see God as your heavenly father May you not see him as distant. May you not see him as just some authoritarian. May you not see him as just a benevolent Santa Claus, but may you see him as he truly is, the God of the universe who made you, who formed you in your mother's womb and who calls himself your father. He wants you to call him father as well. And may you turn to him so that you can become a child of God that lives in eternity in your father's house where Jesus is preparing a place for you. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining me for this divine moment. I hope that today's episode has been helpful to you. I hope that understanding God as your father is going to change the way you see yourself and it's going to change the way that you see others. I hope it changes your relationships. And um, I know it has mine. And so I'm continuing to grow and learn in this. And I'll tell you, uh, just a few days ago, I got a suggestion from somebody listening to the podcast asking me, um, Hey, could you do an episode on this specific topic? I'd love that. Um, if you have any ideas for an episode, uh, something that you'd love to hear on this divine moment, uh, let me know. Because this show is, I want it to be something that helps people. Um, But specifically, I want it to be something that um, it in and of itself is a divine moment that while you're listening to this podcast, that you have moments of awareness of God's grace in your life, of his presence in your life, but that it also helps you to become more aware of God in your everyday life. I truly believe that God is surrounding us at all times. Every second of the day, he is trying to speak to us. And I just think that it takes us having moments to really lean in and pay attention. And then we realize what God is trying to do. That's what this podcast is all about. And so thank you so much for being a listener. Uh, You can always uh, subscribe. You can rate this. You can review it. You can share it on social media. And that just helps more people to learn about the podcast. Um, But I want to thank you again for being a listener. May God bless you and keep you. And I hope that you join again next week for another episode of This Divine Moment.